All right, this morning I'm going to be doing something a little bit different than the usual. Um, because, well, I mean, a number of things, all right? I mean, first of all, yep, on, on those months where there's five Sundays, those are months where we say, hey, does it work to have a youth-focused service? So it is a fifth Sunday, and we're going to do that today. Uh, but also because I'm doing something a little bit of a Halloween theme that's going to go here today. So if, if you're into Halloween, and let me give a bit of background, because, I mean, you, you know how Halloween works in our time and in our culture today. Kids put on costumes and they knock on doors and they go trick-or-treating or, I mean, you go to a corn maze and you get lost and do all that, or you go to a haunted house, if you've been into that kind of thing, or you drive around and you see people who sort of decorate their yards with skeletons and gravestones and that kind of thing. And what's all that about? Where does that come from? So let me make some connections here today first, all right? Halloween. Let's go back 500 years just to pick a place to start. 500 years in Europe, mostly Western Europe, where there was just one church there, the Roman Catholic Church, and they had a lot of different holidays that they celebrated in the Roman Catholic Church. One of those holidays was a day called All Saints Day. All Saints Day is November 1 every year, and there are Catholic people that still celebrate that. All Saints Day being the day that in that tradition you would remember and commemorate all of the saints who are a part of the church. And the Roman Catholic Church at that time would, you know, canonize their saints and they had the whole list of who the saints were and that kind of thing. And most of these saints, all of these saints are people who lived in previous generations. So they lived by their example, and then they died and passed away, but the church remembered them. And then November 1, All Saints Day, the day to remember all of the saints. Somewhere in there, there became another thing that they remembered and commemorated. Remembering that all the saints that had gone before had passed away, the night before that then, or the day before All Saints Day, they would have All Hallows' Eve. And that's the day when they would commemorate the death of the saints, sort of like the night of the dead in that sense. And that's where the tradition goes back and begins, where the church was remembering the death of the saints that went before them. So it was kind of that night of the dead thing that came about that way on All Hallows' Eve. Where costumes and candy came into it, I have no idea. So, I mean, you'll have to Google that one out for yourself to see where that came from. But that's sort of the background behind Halloween. It was remembering the death of all the saints who had gone before us. So there is something about death that's involved with that. Something else that happened on All Hallows' Eve that is a remarkable event that we remember, though, too, that a certain Roman Catholic monk 500 years ago, a guy named Martin Luther, picked that day, All Hallows' Eve, October 31, as a day to state something of where he was at with what he believed in his identity as a part of the church. And he wrote that down in a list, and it's known as his 95 Theses, and all the things that he wrote about, this is the way I think church ought to be and the way we ought to believe and the way we ought to live and the ways that he saw the church at the time as needing to be reformed, to say it a way that we follow through on. And he chose that day then, October 31, All Hell's Eve, as the day to make that known. 
And what he did was he, he posted that, in, well, what he did was he sent it to the Archbishop of Brandenburg, where he lived, and that. But there's a legend about that, too. A legend that, I don't know if it's ever been proven it's true, but the legend says he also took a copy of those 95 theses, and he nailed it to the door of the chapel in, in the city of Wittenberg, where he lived. So that, that's sort of the the image that we carry. And that was sort of the, if nothing else, it was what we pinned down as the official launch date of a period in the church we call the Reformation. On October 31, 1517 was the year that Martin Luther did that and started this period of Reformation in the church that sort of connects with this time of year, and we do that. And he chose that day to do it. Hallow's Eve, Halloween, the night of the dead that they remember. And we carry some of that forward too, right? That, that reformed tradition because we are a part of a church that stays within that tradition of being reformed. After Martin Luther came others like John Calvin, who were also reformers in the church, and a lot of the doctrines and theologies and things that we teach and believe follow in that tradition. We're a part of a church called the Christian Reformed Church, or if you know your Calvin, well, just down the road from us here, Calvin Christian School, the namesake of John Calvin, a reformer, or Calvin University here in town. All those things that are embedded as a part of our tradition now, too. It's connected to us in some way, in the way that's all been passed down and handed down. But take it back 500 years to October 31, 1517. Martin Luther begins this process by supposedly, nailing things to a door and making that statement known, posting something about that. I want us to consider that today, that posting, but we're going to pull it together with a different passage, a passage that will connect to this and is also a passage in Scripture that, well, it's about the night of the dead. So we're going to stick with that theme here too, okay? I'm going to be reading a few things from Exodus chapter 12 that talk about, it's the 10th plague in Egypt, but even though we call it the 10th plague, it really is the night of the dead in that. So Exodus chapter 12, before I read that, would you pray with me? Let's pray. God, we're about to open your word. And as we read this, uh, we want to recognize that this is your word for our lives. So as we hear these words and then consider what they mean. May your spirit speak to us so that we may apply it to our lives and know how you would like us to live. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 21. Here's what it says. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both the sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants 
When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do we make of this one? Hmm? The night of the dead. And did you notice it also has a little something to do with what you put on the door and what that means. So I've been thinking this week about that, about the ways that we post things and that. Something tells me, and I guess I wouldn't know for sure, but I'm going to guess that if Martin Luther were alive today, right? if Martin Luther lived in our time, he would not be nailing things to doors because that's not how we post things anymore in our world. What do we do now? I think if Martin Luther lived today and he wanted to start a reformation in the church, he would make TikTok videos or maybe record a podcast, right? That's how we get those statements out in our world today in thinking about that. That's how you make a statement of identity for the community to see, for others to see. We do it a little differently now than they would have done back then. I think that's significant because Martin Luther did something in his own way, in his own time, that all of us still do in our own way, in our time. It's not unique what Luther did just by posting something about who he was and what he believed. I mean, what was unique was the way he did it, but we all do it too. We all have ways of posting something about ourselves. So I want us to think a little bit about that today. Think a little bit about what it is we're posting and how we do that. And what those things really say about me. What does that have to do with my identity? So how do we post things today? Well, so much of this takes place in social media, right? That, uh, I mean, for those who are older, you remember the dial-up internet, America Online, MySpace? Anyone? No, that's a little too old. Okay, there's, there's a MySpace person here. I, the big one, I think the big first one that came along then was Facebook. And I'm going to understand that really, I'm talking to the over 40 crowd when I'm talking about Facebook, because that's kind of where that's gone, is being it's an older person's thing with that. But there are some older people here who that's still a thing, right? I, I still sort of post things on Facebook and do that. Um, I'm guessing maybe there's sort of this crossover that still happens with Instagram, if that's still a thing, that people do some of that. And for those who are younger than 40, there's, there's the whole TikTok thing that's sort of come around. So there's, it's still ways that are out there. 
But what we do with these things is we post things about ourselves and our own identity for others to see. And it's not just social media that does that, right? Think of all the different ways that we post things about our identity, about who we are. What you choose to wear and the fashion you have and the clothes you wear says something about your identity, posting that for others to see. Or the, the way that you decorate your room or your house or that kind of thing is a posting of here's something about who I am, our identity. The kind of car or truck you choose to drive says something about your identity, posting that. There's all kinds of ways that we are people who post our identities for others to see. In this world of social media, I was intrigued by one that came along uh, relatively recently. So there's this thing called Be Real. Uh, it was 2020 when that one started. So it hasn't been around a long time. I was intrigued by this one because it works differently. So if you're not familiar, if you've never heard of this one before, Be Real is uh, it's a social media app that you get on your phone like the others, and you create a profile for yourself like these others, and you connect with other friends on social media like you do with others, but the way Be Real works is that you get a notification on your phone at a random time of the day, can be whenever, and then, uh, is it two minutes? Okay, thanks. Two minutes. You get two minutes to use your phone then to take a picture of whatever it is you're doing right then, at that exact moment. And then it posts up on Be Real. And you see, everyone, all of your friends you connect with, it, they get the same notification at the same time. So that whatever you're doing right then is posted and then you can scroll through and see what all of your other friends happened to be doing at that exact moment at the same time. That one intrigues me because even by the name, be real, it says something. Here's what it says and here's what they were after. And uh, that, that company was founded by two French guys who talk about what it is they made and why they made it. And be real was an attempt to go after what it is that they saw on so much of the rest of social media is not real. Staged, right? That in so many other ways on social media, we, we post things that, well, it's not really us, or it's not most of our experience. After all, I mean, you, you scroll through Facebook and you see people posting pictures of happy families and friends and they're smiling and laughing and they're having a good time together. Nobody on Facebook posts pictures of their family having an argument or not getting along. But we have real families. Sometimes we argue, right? Sometimes we don't get along. But what you put up on Facebook doesn't really show that side. It's not the real side of things. It's just what we want to project. It's what we want people to see. Um, I've talked about this a lot. You know, my hobby is cooking. I love kitchen things. So Instagram is look what I cooked. Look what I was able to make today. And you know what? I'm not ever posting pictures of a bag of potato chips or a bowl of Cheerios. Even though those are things in our house that we eat, but that's not what I'm going to project on social media as part of what I want other people to see. So I think these guys that started Be Real clued into that. Clued into this idea that sometimes with the things that we're posting about ourselves, the sometimes the things that we're trying to put on and project is, look at me, this is me, this is my identity, is not actually our real identity. The real me, the real you, is 
somewhere behind that. And we put up something in front of it that we want people to see and think, this is us, but can we be honest? That there are moments in our days when that's not really us? That we're thinking different things than that? We're dealing with different things than that? So as I've been thinking this week about posting and what that means, I've thought about how we try to put some statements out there of, look at who I am, but somewhere behind all of that, we're actually thinking or feeling something else that's not like that. Let's connect that then into this idea of posting identities and Let's connect it to the night of the dead, this passage from Exodus. Because there was something of a posting of identity that took place there that I think we can learn a little something about in all of these ways that we try to post identity yet today and what that looks like. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, all right, I've got the door here and some of the things that we're going to just nail up to it. That Sometimes when we post, even though we want to put something out there that says, look at me, I've got things all together, let's be honest of what's behind that. Sometimes what we're really thinking, I mean, what I'm really posting around there is, here's what I'm really thinking. I just want to belong. I just want a place where I feel like I belong. When you get past all the stuff on the surface, I think sometimes that's what we see beneath it. And seeing beneath it, by the way, um, God's there. God knows what's really going on when I'm thinking. God knows what's really going on when I'm feeling. God knows when the real thing that I'm posting is something that really says, you know what? There's times when I just feel lonely. I'm lonely. I post that or try to hide that behind some other posts, but in some of those moments, that's something of an identity that we deal with. It's a question we all ask, right? Where do I belong? Who are my friends? Who can I count on? Who can I actually be real with? Be vulnerable. Let them know what I'm really thinking and not be judged or mocked or rejected for that, but be enfolded and accepted. There's something in us that wants that. And we carry that as part of our identity, don't we? An identity somewhere inside where I think all of us, when we get down to the heart of it, we would have to admit, I just want to belong somewhere. I just want a group of friends where I can be who I am. And that's good and enough. We post something like that. And God sees that. God sees that we carry that kind of identity. We're asking those kinds of questions we're struggling with those kinds of things. 
we go another one in, right? And putting some stuff on the door. Sometimes our posts get to the end of just wanting to know it's going to be all right. Sometimes that's an identity that we're holding on to, something that's defining us. I just want to know I'm going to be all right, that it's going to be all right. Or maybe that's another way of thinking. Sometimes what I'm saying is there are times when I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I don't know what's going to happen next. I I don't know what the next stage of life is going to be. I'm afraid because maybe I don't know exactly who my friend groups are that I can trust or not trust. Or I'm afraid because, you know, school comes to an end and I graduate and what comes next? I don't know. Or for those of us beyond that, it's the career, how's the job going and what if it doesn't work out? And you have questions about health and sickness, and all of those things where we try to hold on to as much good as we can because I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. We we have phrases that capture something of that, right? Clichés that we hold on to. Things like, all good things must come to an end. But we don't want that. Or we say things like, too good to be true. But we want it to be true. We, we sort of acknowledge somewhere. Somewhere we acknowledge and hold on to that. That stuff doesn't seem to last forever. So I try to hold on to that as long as I can. And then we end up being people who hoard and grab on to as much good as we can. We are people who are caught up in greed of give me and take. I want to take as much as I can and I want to hold on to that because I want to hold on to all that's good and I'm afraid of letting it go. I don't know what's going to happen if it goes. I just want to know it'll be all right. That I'm okay. And that's another thing that we deal with, right? The, the piece of wanting to know that I'm okay. Want to know that I'm okay. Or maybe another way of catching that is sometimes I just feel ashamed. I carry shame that I'm not a good person, that I'm no good. And we carry some of that shame in ways that hold on to us. Different than guilt. Right? I'm, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is when I know I've done a bad thing. Right? I, I know that I've done something no good. That's guilt. And you know what? There's a, there's a good reason for that. That when we do mess up, when we do something that's wrong, when we do something that's no good, we should feel some guilt about that. Because that's the conscience that we have, that God is pricking at us to say, that's not the right thing. So guilt has a function, it has a purpose. When we say, I've done a bad thing or I've done something no good, shame is saying, I'm no good. Not the thing that I've done is no good, but I'm a no-good person. And sometimes we carry that. Sometimes that's, that's somewhere right under the surface, isn't it? That we're wondering. 
that I'm no good. And, and I just want to know that I'm okay. We live in a world and in a time where we deal with a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. And we're just asking that question sometimes. Am I okay? I just want to know that I'm okay. And we deal with the shame that comes along with that. So I think you get behind what it is that we really project and post about ourselves and you really get down to what's real, somewhere beneath it, the places where God knows. God knows what we think. God knows what we feel. Let's be honest that some of these things are the things that we carry around underneath that. So God comes to his people, the Israelites, right? They're, they're slaves in Egypt. And they're held in captivity. They're being made to do work that they don't want to do. And they're carrying an identity that goes along with that. An identity where as slaves, they know, we don't belong here. This isn't a place where we belong. We're being forced to be here. But they're carrying that identity. They're carrying an identity of everything's wrong in our world. I just want things to be all right, but everything's going wrong. If you go back in the Exodus story and hear how that begins, that as the Israelites were growing as a group of people, the Pharaoh, the, the, leader, at that, the leader of Egypt at that time, started killing off all the boys so that they would shrink in numbers and not get too big for them to manage. Their world was falling apart. And they're carrying something of that identity. Our world is turned upside down and I'm afraid. I just want to know it'll be all right. The Israelites at that time are carrying some shame. They're slaves. They're nobodies. Their lives don't count for anything because they've been branded as worthless slaves. They just want to be okay. God comes to his people when they are slaves in Egypt and that's what they've got posted on them. That's what they're thinking. And so God comes and he brings about this ritual that they commemorate, the Passover. Something that not only is it the 10th plague, the night of the dead, when the Pharaoh finally sets them free. Not only is it that, but it's also a statement of identity. Because the Israelites commemorate this event. They keep doing it every year, this Passover, because it has to drill into them. There's another identity. That's what Passover does. It gives them a new identity. And they have to be reminded of that over and over. If you know the Exodus story, after they cross the Red Sea and they, they're out in the wilderness, how many times do they find themselves, the people saying, you know what, let's just go back. Let's just go back to Egypt. Let's go back to this identity. Let's just go back to that. And God has to remind them over and over again, that's not you. I didn't make you to be that. That's not the person I want you to be. It's not how you were created. So Passover gives them a new identity that God makes a way for them to be something different something more. And it's restored in the New Testament. You know, the, the blood that they paint around the door frames so that 
death would pass them by, pass them over. That becomes fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus is the one who becomes that Passover lamb, who then takes all of this identity that we carry, all those things that we hold on to somewhere beneath, and all those things we question about ourselves, right? Those questions of, I just want a place to belong, and I want to know it's going to be all right, and I want to know that I'm okay. And Jesus takes all of that and says, you know what? You don't need to be that person anymore. Jesus gives a new identity in place of that. So even though, I mean, we've nailed some things to a door here today, there were a different kind of nails that went through Jesus to take this identity and make it something different. So instead of wanting a place to belong, Jesus takes that and, and he says, Here's, who you're, here's the person you are now because of Jesus. Now you are a person who's accepted. And I'm accepted just as I am. Jesus does not place conditions upon having to do the right things or being the right person or follow all the right rules or checking all the right boxes. Jesus says, the person you are right now is accepted. Jesus accepts you as you are. And so all those questions of, but where do I belong? I just want a place to belong. Jesus says, you belong to me. You belong here. You belong in his family with him. He gives you that identity, a place to belong, a place to be accepted, not as something you're not, but for who God made you to be as you've been created. Then, just wanting to know it'll be all right, being afraid, Jesus says, you are loved. And you are loved unconditionally, and you are loved eternally. That Jesus goes to the cross because of love. Here's what he says about that. What, what the Apostle John writes about that in 1 John 4, he writes this. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. So that old identity, the one that says, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose all that's good. Jesus says, you don't have to live with that identity of fear. Instead, I am going to give you an identity of love. And it's a love that cannot be taken away. It's a love that sticks forever as a part of who you are. So, I am accepted just as I am. I am loved unconditionally and eternally. And instead of just wanting to know that I'm okay, Jesus says, you know what? I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven completely. That all of that shame 
that sometimes we deal with, right? The shame of, I'm a no good person. I'm not good enough. I can never be good enough. That Jesus says in place of that, it's all right. You don't have to be perfect. Because Jesus takes all of our imperfections and brought that to the cross. And in place of that, Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness. So now when the Heavenly Father looks down on you, when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin, even though we're still broken people. When God looks down on you, what he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because that's what Jesus placed upon you at the cross. His perfect righteousness. And knowing that I am completely forgiven and covered in the righteousness of Christ. This is the identity that God wants his people to have. That he gives us. And the one that he reminds us of over and over again in his word. That this is who we are now in Jesus. That I don't have to live as someone who's alone and afraid and ashamed. But now I live as someone who's accepted and loved and forgiven. That's what God does for us. So this is what's posted for you. This is what's on your door, right? This is what God wants you to have is this is your social media statement about who I am. That I'm this. I'm someone who's accepted and loved and forgiven. The identity that we have then, the identity that you have in Jesus, it shapes the person that you are and it shapes the life that you live. It shapes the person that you are, and it shapes the life that you live. If you are a person who still holds on to and clings to that old identity, the identity of those slaves in Egypt, if you hold on to and cling that identity of, you know what, I don't belong anywhere, and I'm afraid, and I'm ashamed, if that's the identity that you're still holding on to, that shapes the person that you are. And it shapes the way that you live. But Jesus has taken that away. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. This is who you are now. This is your identity. That you're accepted and loved and forgiven. And embracing that, that shapes my identity. And now that shapes the way that I live that I'm going to live as someone who's accepted by God as I am. I'm going to live as someone who's loved unconditionally and eternally. And I'm going to live as someone who is completely forgiven. That my life is going to bear the fruit of that, multiply that. That I'm going to live in ways that embrace that as my identity and that's going to spill over for others to see too knowing that God has given them that identity as well. Something posted upon us. So in all the ways you think of posting who it is you think you are, keep bringing it back to what Jesus has done. 
keep remembering that the identity you have in Jesus, the person that you are, shapes the life that you live. So live as God has identified you to be. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that you remind us in your word of who it is that we really are. God, we're sorry for times when we, we keep hanging on to the wrong identity. We keep hanging on to the things that you've taken away from us. We're sorry for doing that. God, help us to remember. Help us to live into it. Just as those Israelites kept wanting to go back to Egypt, wanting to go back to the old, and you kept leading them forward, saying, no, that's not who you are anymore. Now you're someone new and different because God has redeemed them and saved them. God, do that with us too. Whenever we look back and want to cling on to all those old ways of thinking about ourselves, ways that are wrong, remind us of who we are in you because of what you've done for us. May that not only shape the identity that we have, but may it also shape the way that we live. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's declare this together to God.